Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to the podcast of Community Bible Church. Serving the Rogue Valley from Central Point, Oregon. We are a multi-generational family. Equipping believers to be adopted in, growing up, and reaching out through the gospel. And family, we're going to read a little bit on Asaph today. And to be fair with you, as, as we see Psalm uh, 83, as we dive into it, you're not going to see the subtlety of, of his pleas to us. Because they are really subtle. And what you're going to hear as we go through it the first time is a lot of sour behavior, a sour words. But the flavor is far from that. And family, I want to I admit to you today, our culture is changing. Our culture is changing. Kevin talked about a, a third world country, Cuba, and they're going through real persecution. There, there, are, there are places today that it's hard to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ, and some that are impossible to publicly claim the name of Christ. You and I still can. Is it turning more difficult? Oh, yeah. Family, and it's doing so on the right and on the left. It doesn't, you don't need to look down at one political party. From the far right this week, one of our own congressmen looking down at her now son who's having a baby, looked down and said, don't bring up the Bible to me. Don't nitpick about the Bible just because he's having it as a teenager. And yet she's the same one who brought up a verse a year ago condemning the other political party. There's no respect on either side for what we believe. We saw six people get killed this last week. And the reaction from some within our within our system was what did you expect you preach hate so not only did we grieve because brothers and sisters were shot but we also grieved because they were condemned for being shot for what they believed so understand it's a it's a it's a difficult world and it might be changing and so Asaph's words become not only something that springs from the pages 2,500 years ago, but are as fresh as your newspaper is now. So we want you to find encouragement in this. Because what I want you to see this morning is that Psalm 80, 83 is going to teach us much of the New Testament truth. The world hates us because we don't belong to it. But it goes a lot deeper. Psalm 83 will also show us how we should react. First, it shows us there's really no way out. There's no way out but trust in God. There's no way out, only prayer. It also explains our hope we trust the proven power of God. And finally, I want to suggest to you it confronts our attitude for those who may hate us. That 
that we want to pray this morning that God open our eyes about who we are as a family of God and how we best represent Him in the world today. So if you will, we're going to read the whole psalm together. I want it to be in your mind. I want it to be fresh. Then I want you to open your Bibles, open your cell phone, and have a piece of Scripture in front of you. Be, be willing to either color code the, your phone or be free to write in your Bibles this morning. My goal is, is to create a scenario in which you find chances of discussion this week on what we've talked about in church. So let's look together at Psalm 83. Oh God, do not keep silence. Do not hold your peace or be still. Oh God, for behold, your enemies make an uproar. Those who hate you have raised their heads. They lay crafty plans against your people. They consult together against your treasured ones. They say, come, let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more. For they conspire with one accord against you. They make a covenant. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagarites, Gabal and Ammon and Amalek, Philistia with the inhabitants of Tyre. Asher also has joined them. And they are a strong arm of the children of Lot, Selah. Do to them as you did to Midian, as to Sisera and Jabin at the river Kishon, who were destroyed at Endor and who became dung for the ground. Make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb, all their princes like Zeba and Zalmunna, who said, let us take possession for ourselves of the pastures of God. Oh, God, oh my God, make them like whirling dust, like chaff before the wind, as fire consumes the forest, as flames set the mountains ablaze, so you may pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your hurricane. Before I go on, I want to, you've heard a very strong statement. Listen to the change and be aware of it. Fill their faces with shame, that they may seek your name, O Lord. Let them be put to shame and dismayed forever. Let them perish in disgrace, that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. So family, I, I want you to see first that ultimately, it, it's not the power of the vote, it's not the power of our military might or our financial freedom, it's none of those things. The Psalms can tell us that some seek after chariots, but we after the Lord. Ultimately, we have no ability to change what's going on. So there is nowhere to turn but to God. So I want you to notice, Asaph is troubled by the treatment of God's people. But he also realizes the only hope is the Lord's help. So I want you to see how he begins. He begins with the, the phrase, Oh God. In other words, he begins with prayer. It's our starting point. He's not here to whine. He is communicating his heart to the Lord. And as he began in prayer, I want you to notice something really unusual. I want you to see how he addresses God. 
Family, he doesn't start with Yahweh, the name of a covenant relationship and intimacy. The name he uses here is Elohim. It contains the idea of God's creative power as well as authority and sovereignty. But later, later, when he speaks to a positive statement, he will address God as Yahweh. Yahweh has a rich, subjective nature to it. It defines the subjective characteristics of God's love, His mercy, His unchangeableness. It addresses His relationship with you and the consistency of that relationship. Let me try to paint a picture of what's going on. He says, oh God. Family, you know me as Pastor Pete, right? And I encourage every one of you to call me Pete. I don't want to stress the title that I serve. I want you to, to recognize that I'm just another brother in the church with you. I, 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 I serve our Savior, and I'm going to report to the King just like you. And yet at the same when I stand here in the pulpit, I have a different representation. You're going to see me at Albertsons at Food for Less, and you're going to tell your friends, that's my pastor. All right? So there's a representation that I have. But I want you to understand, the same guy, Pete, is loved by three little girls, my grandkids. And you know what they call me? Grampy. Now, you see, you need to understand, I'll give you guys anything. Visit you in the hospital? You betcha. Care for you, pray for you? You betcha. Kick you in the tail when you've sinned? You betcha. But I ain't grampy to you. All right? Three little girls come up and say, Grampy, and I pull out my wallet. What do you need? <laughs> grampy, what do you want? You got it. The answer is yes already. All right? Grampy, can we? Yep. But we haven't said anything. Okay, it's okay. You're going to get it. There's a relationship difference, all right? And unless you put it in your head right now, the difference between Elohim, God, and Yahweh. Yahweh is intimate, just like Grampy is intimate. Yahweh is covenantal. It's I promise that I'm faithful to you. I'm not going to leave. I'm here for you. Even though you make a mistake, you sin, I'm still here. I promised. I never leave you or forsake you. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life. All right? Yahweh. Yahweh. Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. I am is a shortened form of Yahweh. So over and over again, we're reminded that you and I are invited into a covenantal relationship. But he starts off so that the people outside of that covenant relationship know just who they're dealing with. And he begins his prayer with, Oh God. He wants them to know, 
outside of the family, just how strong and powerful God is. So he uses this phrase for explanation. The psalm opens with a threat to the Lord's people expressed in the foe's determination to destroy them from being a nation, to blot out their name from memory, leaving them without a place on the earth or a place in history. Family, this is the world's hatred, evidenced first by anti-Semitism, then as it hated the ultimate Jew, Jesus Christ, we find over and over again that that hatred is expressed to our Savior. And family, finally, because we represent the Savior to this world, we are now in a situation where the world cannot understand who we follow, why we follow him, and why his principles are so important and vital to our lives. But family, understand, unfortunately, there is no compromise between the two positions. How can one be confronted with hate and hope to find middle ground with love? How can you do that? I want to suggest to you it offers no middle ground, and there never should be middle ground. 2 Corinthians can say it this way, uh, chapter 6, verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with, unlaw or with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? So understand, we live in a society generally growing weary of Christian culture. But I want you to know your happiness and your dependence doesn't come from that culture. It comes from a confidence in the God who cares for us. Notice, ultimately, God is the target. So beginning in verse 6, uh, Asaph is going to give you a variety of enemies. Now, I can give you a wonderful history lesson, but let's just put it this way. I want you to take your mind's imagination and put Israel right in the middle here of whatever mental piece of paper you now are, are, are having in front of you. And as you take that mental piece of paper and put Israel right in the middle, I want you to start generally with the top, upper, right-hand corner. And then go around Israel and then keep going north. So just make a, a loop and then a line going north. And that's essentially these enemies that he is expressing here. Every one of them surround Israel. Every one of them have been in antagonism with Israel since they took the promised land. 
And so we're simply pointing at the variety of enemies. But I want you to notice, not only are the people specified as being targets, but the Lord himself is the target of the alliance. And those surrounded, he will never forsake us. He will stand by the glory of his name. And so as we understand and we see people who may want to do us harm, as people who don't think like we do, as we recognize that we're the ultimate targets and Christ is the one who we represent and as we represent him is their ultimate aim, God's not going to leave us. God's going to care for us. So notice, can we know peace? If we're always at odds, if we're always in contention, can we know peace? So I want you to notice, beginning in verse 12, Canaan is called the pasture lands of God. This is where God shepherds his flock. If I took you to Psalm 23, how does it begin? The Lord is my... Where do shepherds take care of their sheep? In a pasture. What's God's pasture? The promised land. And so all he's simply saying is, is the promised land. Just as we talked a couple of weeks ago that Jerusalem has a special idea within the visual or the physical presentation of God, the promised land also represents that, that earthly vision of what God holds precious. God has a special place in his heart and in his plans for Jerusalem and the promised land. This land is the gift of his people. So Asaph just simply remembers the times God won battles for Israel in an unusual way. And, and family, some of you may be more knowledgeable in your Bible than others. But these are wonderful pictures. And there's some of the more incredible stories of the whole Bible. So he begins with the idea that they captured the Midianites. And for me, uh, it just takes me back to Sunday school. And he talked about the man Gideon. Do you remember? And Gideon said, I have to gather an army. God, God asked me to gather an army. And 32,000 men show up. We're going to gather and we're going to fight Midian. Now, 32,000 against the Midianites. Midianites had 120,000 people. That's a bad fight. God says, there's too many of you. You'll take the credit if you win. Tell all the frightened ones to go home. 10,000 is all that's left. 10,000 against 120,000. 12 to 1, not good odds. God says, too many. You'll take the credit if you win. 300's left. 300 defeated the Midianites. We'll see later that the, the, two, the two kings that are mentioned, 
um, are taken away, Zeb and Oreb. Uh, they're commanders. They're second in command. Those wonderful guys that you all want to name your children after, Zeba and Zalmuna, are also there and mentioned. And Gideon wins with 300 men. Well, who's going to get the credit out of that? Not the ability of Gideon, but God. He goes on to talk about Sisera. Sisera the Canaanite had 900 chariots, and no one in Israel could touch the might of the Canaanites. And called into battle, Deborah and Barak, Barak the commander, said, I can't do it. But you see, God could. Well, 900 chariots went to battle that day. And along the river, God simply flooded the river. And 9,000 chariots are now worthless as they're stuck up to their ankles in mud. And Israel defeats Sisera. And I love the one phrase, guys. Don't ever forget, sometimes we miss some beautiful subtlety in phrases. He says that Sisera became dung to the ground. Well, Sisera was one of the few escapees. And he goes and takes a nap into a, a tent. And the woman in the tent, Jair, then takes a tent peg puts it in his ear and drives him right into the ground. And Cicero, at least the key body parts, were all became part of the fertilizer for the ground. You see, God can be trusted to take care of us when we don't think there's a chance. God is the one in control. So when we look down and say, Lord, there's no peace. Don't forget, God over and over and over again has taken us through. Family, you and I know that for all of the years I've been with you, I've used the, the death of my first son. I can only tell you this. My son took seven weeks to pass away there in the hospital room from birth to home going. Now I want you to understand, was it ever fun? No, no, no. Did I ever find God lacking? Not there. Leaving me in distress. Not reminding me of his overall care for me. No. God was always there. God was there in the middle of the night when I'd wake up and I couldn't get back to sleep. God was there as I'm sitting by Peter and Kathy's by my side and they come in and say, hey, you need to move. There's something wrong with Peter and we need to deal with it. He's there. We're, we're out in the waiting room praying, but we always sensed his care. And you see, you need to understand that even when life doesn't go our way, God's there to nourish God's there to show us. God's there to comfort us. And when we rely on that, we find blessing. 
And ultimately, I want to suggest to you, we find peace. Read Tortured for Christ, the monthly reminder to the, of the persecuted church. And what you will find is men and women who faithfully serve God in some of the toughest responsibilities that they will go through. And you will find them over and over again at peace in tough times. So can we know peace? You betcha. We are at peace. God, or Asaph asks God to brush the enemies of the, of the fields of Israel like a dust devil pulls dirt from the air and sends it flying. The Lord is asked to use all of the forces of creation that are at his command to scatter, to destroy, to disorient, and disappoint his foes. But what I want you to see is, even as the psalm asks for some very harsh treatment of the enemies of God, the author asks that they may seek your name, O Lord. He now turns it from the powerful one, the sovereign one, to the loving caretaker one. He now moves, he says, if you will, Pastor Pete, go get him. And then he turns and says, may they know you, Grampy. May they know you as the one who always takes care of and treats your grandkids, your people, just like you would want them to know the special relationship that can never be broken. He says, let them see that part of you. Let them see that side of you. Family, I want to remind you today, there is a sense where it's easy for you to moralistically talk about hell, to recognize that it's a theological understanding that we hold to, that people who don't accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior will enter into a Christless hell, that they will be there forever. But I want to suggest to you, remove it for a moment from moralism and a theological position. And now talk about your prodigal child. Is it hard to talk about in, in those blunt ways? Or now is it much more demanding of you? Now do you care that much more deeply? What about that friend or that loved one at work that has always been there for you? And now you talk about the reality of hell and its certainty, and they don't know the story. I want to suggest to you, you're only left with two positions. Number one, it is so overwhelming to you to know that that's the ultimate conclusion for those who reject salvation in Jesus Christ, that you reject salvation, you reject Christ, because you can't understand why God would do that to the ones you love so very much. Or, two, you're going to be more drawn to that Savior and consequently more likely to risk the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ to those that 
desperately need it. And now, the truth of God's theology is something that you wear. And so family, understand that's the point that Asaph has here. He recognizes all the power of God, the authority of God, the sovereignty of God, but he says, God, act like Yahweh. Act like our covenant keeper. Act like you treat us Israelites to all our enemies. Please. And so he closes the Psalms with the simple reminder, let them know. Family, when we truly care, there is none on this planet we really want to see experience the unbridled wrath of Elohim God. In verse 1, Asaph wants them to know that God, Elohim. God contains the idea of God's creative power as well as his authority and sovereignty. And that's exactly what we hear Paul say in Romans when Elohim shows himself. 19 and 20 of chapter 1 says this, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that they have been made so they are without excuse. So family, when, when we simply take the theological understanding of what we know of the Almighty God, no one on this planet who recognizes and sees the intricacies of creation, who sees the power and the authority of, of God moving across this planet in common grace, who cares for what amounts to be the only terrarium in the entire universe. God opens the window and feeds it. God opens and cares for all of the created ones in it. And for anyone to ever say that time plus chance has left this terrarium at, at work is not using the capacity of the mind that God gave them. So we end with Asaph wanting them to know God as Yahweh. He wants God to be in a covenant-keeping relationship with them, just as the Jews have enjoyed that relationship. It is almost as if he is proclaiming the gospel somewhat in reverse. We have Matthew 28, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. He's presenting that same idea with the recognition that, just like we know, we're not salesmen. We tell a story, and we allow God to percolate in the ears of the person that we communicate to. And we know that the Holy Spirit is the one that turns the light bulb on. We know that only the Holy Spirit is the one that changes the heart. And so Asaph simply reminds us here 
that the enemies won't open their ears. So Asaph is asking God that God would open their ears and not know God as, Yah- as Elohim, but to know him as Yahweh. Know him as the one who loves them, is in covenant with them, cares for them, and will never leave them. And family, that's exactly what we're here to worship this morning. A Savior, Jesus Christ, who cares for us because the Father cared for us. And God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. You see, family, God opened your ears sometime in the past, didn't He? You were an enemy. You were an enemy to God's people. You were under the wrath of Elohim. And there was a day that came Maybe God took everything away from you just like Asaph is praying that everything gets taken away from the enemy. And when all was taken away, you saw the living Lord. That may not be your testimony. Your testimony may be that you had family who loved you so much that they taught you the gospel. And from the earliest days, you responded to that gospel and grew in it. Each one of us have a different story because the light bulb of God's love came on at a different time. What a privilege it is to know that ultimately, no matter where you live on this planet, our only solution is to trust the God who loves us more than anything else in the world. Father, take us from here today, mindful of all that you've given us and blessed us with, Dear God, mindful that that, that blessing, no matter what we have here in Americana, dear God, that blessing starts with the reception of eternal life given to us by Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins. And may that be our absolute confidence. We'd ask you to be with us today, mindful of who we are because we and proclaim we have Jesus, the great I am. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the podcast of Community Bible Church. Follow us on Facebook to keep up to date with all our latest content. Thank you.